Chapter 2, Round 2, When I Overcame a Water Bottle Just days before my accident, my mom took a picture of my dad, my brothers, and me. We were working outside, the five of us, building a huge sliding door for our new horse barn. It was early summer. In the picture, we look all manly, working together without shirts. We looked normal. We had no way of knowing that in just a few days, what we considered normal would change forever. When I woke up the morning after the accident, I faced a new life. The night before, I'd mostly felt regret, an intense wishing that I could go back in time and undo the accident. Starting that morning and over the next days and weeks, I had to begin to deal with the fact that I couldn't go back. I could not change what had happened. I spent 11 days in the hospital, which was uncomfortable for me, but even more so for my family, specifically my mom. She stayed with me the whole time, sleeping in a chair by my bed, because you know, she's my mom. While I was there, I got tons of cards. Friends from school and church sent me notes. Even some of the other football teams in our conference sent me messages. I had lots of visitors too. Friends came to see me. My ex-girlfriend visited. That was fun. And people who knew, who knew my parents stopped by. They were encouraging and supportive. In fact, it became a thing for my visitors to sign the dry erase board in my room. And before long, it was entirely covered. The hospital said we couldn't take it home, but a maintenance guy found out about it, visited me, and said, I'll be sure to take that down for you. I still have it. But despite all the attention, those days in the hospital were not about my social standing. They were mostly spent doing the hard work of recovering. I had several surgeries as the doctors tried to save my left hand. They inserted metal pins in an attempt to maintain its structure. They also put a pin through my index finger, hoping it would reattach. Before long, though, I knew that my left hand was not getting better. Every day, the tension in my thumb grew tighter, and I slowly lost the ability to bend it. It also lost all color and became charcoal black. Instinctively, I knew my hand was dying, and it was. Finally, my finger fell off the pin they had put through it. It didn't hurt. In fact, I remember sort of swinging my arm around, watching it dangle and thinking how odd it was to see my finger like that. It was completely surreal. Unfortunately, my mom was watching me right then, and she didn't think it was too funny. She got emotional, hugged me, and told me it was going to be okay. I felt bad making her cry, but the idea of losing what remained of my left hand never really bothered me. Maybe that is surprising, but seeing my hand in that condition, I already felt as if it wasn't my hand anymore. To me, it was already gone. My hand was only one part of my recovery, however. Losing my arms like that was a huge shock to my body. On top of that, I laid in bed for three straight days, which felt like a hundred days to my body. I had never been so inactive in my life. So when the doctors made me get out of bed to walk, I struggled. Even with a person on each side of me, it took all my energy and focus to pick up one foot and put it in front of the other. It was an odd feeling. I don't know why it was so hard to do, but I made a mental note of that moment. I knew that I would get my strength back, but I never wanted to forget just how low I had been. 
I also struggled to wrap my head around what my life was going to be like. Early on, the doctors asked if I wanted to speak to a counselor, but I decided not to. It wasn't that I thought I was fine. I knew I was going to need lots of help and support in my recovery. I just didn't feel like I had anything to talk about at that point. It was in the hospital that I was first introduced to the idea of prosthetics. The doctors were hopeful about the advancements that were being made and thought that prosthetics would be beneficial to me. But my best information came from Chris. He did a bunch of research about them and it all sounded interesting. At the time though, everyone around me was more excited about prosthetics than I was. They were looking ahead and were encouraged by what they found. I was still trying to heal. The hospital became a safe haven for me. I believe I could have gone home earlier than I did, but I didn't really want to. In the outside world, everything was going to be different and challenging. I was worried that when I came home, I would want to go out and do all the things I had done before, like help my dad and brothers work on the new horse barn or zip around on the dirt bike. Except now, I couldn't. I didn't want to face that reality. Of course, my family was excited about me coming home. Most of them had taken vacation time from work to be with me. But let's be honest, sitting around the hospital isn't much of a vacation. I understood their excitement to leave, so instead of saying anything, I kept my concerns to myself while I dreaded going home. Eventually, they released me. At first, I had to go to hydrotherapy sessions several times a week to try to stimulate growth in my left hand. I'd sit with my hand in this whirlpool of warm water, saturated with vitamins and minerals. Other than getting me out of the house, it didn't really do any good. So finally, the decision was made that my left hand was unsalvageable. I went back to the hospital in early July for surgery to amputate what remained of my hand, shortening my arm so that it ended just above where my wrist should be. Then I had nothing to do but face my new life, which was not easy. My new kind of normal. Physically, the medication I had to take made me very sick. Throwing up was a rare thing for me in my old normal, but after I got home, I threw up two or three times every day for several months. My record was seven times in one day. It was rough and I ended up losing 25 of the 150 pounds I weighed to start with. It got so bad that I had to drink this protein shake they give to old people called Boost, which is like thick, slightly chalky chocolate milk. Thankfully, that did help. Muscle atrophy was another new reality. I'm sure I'd heard of it before, but I didn't really know what it was. Basically, it's when you don't use your body or a part of it, so you start to lose muscle mass. The muscles simply deteriorate. Because I wasn't using my arms, I lost a lot of upper body muscle. I had always been in pretty good shape and prided myself on the fact that it was hard to see my body just fade away. I also felt very self-conscious about my new appearance. I'm pretty introverted and I don't like a lot of attention. So later in July, when I went to the grocery store with my mom, again, mostly to get out of the house, I could sense people staring at my disfigured body, trying to figure out what had happened. It was really uncomfortable and I wished I could have hidden inside a bubble or something. Only one person was brave enough to ask, an older guy who simply said, corn picker? I politely said, no, 500 ton power press. I didn't know how else to respond. 
The physical reality of my new life was a constant challenge. So emotionally, I pretty much stayed in survival mode. I was numb, going through the motions, doing what I had to do to get by. Except for seeing my parents arrive at the hospital that first night, I hadn't really cried. But of course, eventually the pain caught up with me. The physical pain hit me after the July surgery. It was scheduled as an outpatient procedure, which roughly translated meant I was to come in, let them cut off my hand, and then go back home again that same day like it was no big deal. I must have fooled the doctors into thinking I was tough or something because my body did not recover well from the surgery. The pain was intense, and I ended up staying overnight. Even after I was released, the pain was continuous, and when I was finally home, watching TV with my family, my arms started throbbing to the point I had to leave the room in tears. My body was simply overwhelmed, and so was I. The biggest emotional pain, however, came a few days later. I was lying on the living room couch. My mom was in the kitchen and no one else was home. For the first time since the accident, I let myself think about the future. Questions flooded my mind. Will I ever function independently again? What kind of life will I have? Will anyone want to marry me? If I ever have kids, will I be able to teach them how to play sports? But my biggest question was simply why? Why me? Why now? Why at all? Why this huge, life-changing tragedy that I never asked for? I really wrestled with it, but as I lay there fighting the uncertainty and fear, I slowly found peace. Even as I recognized that this new life was going to be much different than what I would have imagined for myself, one thought became crystal clear. I was going to be okay. I didn't know how it would all work out. I didn't know when, but I felt God reassuring me that somehow... It was going to be okay. <clears throat> First steps. Gradually, I started to live my new hands-free life. And it was hard. When you have a hands, a bad day can be bad. But when you don't have hands, a bad day can be horrible. It was as if I was a baby again, except I was 17. It was really tempting to wallow in self-pity, but I quickly discovered that self-pity wasn't helpful. Instead, I had to swallow my pride and admit I needed help. That was a big step for me. Thankfully, my family helped with all of my basic needs. They encouraged me, and the fact that I could depend on them meant I wasn't alone, and that took away a lot of my fear. Still, this new life wasn't easy for my family either. They all wanted to fix my situation, but they couldn't give me back my hands. They watched me struggle to do all the little things I used to do without a second thought, like picking up a spoon or tying my shoes, as well as all the things I once loved to do, like play sports. Chris, in particular, struggled with that part. We had competed together for a long time, even before we started school. Now he was playing summer baseball without me, and although the team was playing well, our friends shared with me that he was struggling. His focus wasn't on the game. His heart just wasn't in it anymore. So when our baseball team made it to the sectional finals, I decided to go to the game. I knew Chris needed me there, and I wanted to go to encourage him. It was a major step for me, and I was excited to go. But I was nervous, too. As much as I wanted to see the game, going out in public was still a concern for me. 
I was afraid of the attention I would get, the stares and curiosity of people I would see. When I got there, though, nothing I feared actually happened. These weren't strangers in a grocery store. This was my community. They knew me and my story, and they accepted me, with or without hands. Because of their acceptance, I really enjoyed the game. Chris and the team played well, and they won. But as happy as I was for them, I was also disappointed. I would have been playing in the game if I still had my hands. Instead, I had to watch from the stands. I did join them on the field for the presentation of the trophy and the team picture, but I was the only one not in uniform. It was strange, and I felt out of place. After that day, I shifted into a new stage of my recovery. I couldn't just stay home. I couldn't hide. I knew I was ready for something more. I needed an escape route, something that would help me start moving forward. And finally, I found it in football. A showdown with a water bottle. I played football from the youngest possible age, from the glory days of two-hand touch at recess to flag football to organized football in middle school and high school. The game of football was a big part of my life, so it makes sense that football was what pushed me into my new life. The process wasn't overly dramatic like some blockbuster movie version of my life would make it seem. And it wasn't because I ended up making a big comeback, though I did, and that was really cool. More on that later. Football provided my first steps into my new life because I was thirsty. The whole thing started when I was still in the hospital. Coach Olwyn, our head football coach, came to see me, which I really appreciated. What surprised me, though, was what he talked to me about. He talked to me about playing football again. Wait, what? I am pretty sure that a hospital is the last place most coaches go to recruit players, especially players with no hands. Neither one of us knew exactly what playing again might look like, but he told me I was still welcome on the team. In fact, seeing that I still had two healthy legs, becoming a kicker seemed like one possible option. It wasn't until late in July that I took him up on his invitation. The team was playing in a seven-on-seven passing tournament. Chris had to be there early, so I had my mom take me out later in the day. I enjoyed hanging out with the team and watching them play. Everyone was glad to see me, and except for the hot, humid weather, it was a fun day. The tournament went all afternoon, and after being out in the sun for a while, I got thirsty. So I went over to a trainer and asked for a drink. She picked up a water bottle from her carry tote and aimed for my mouth. With a quick squeeze of the bottle, I got a drink, and we discovered what I thought was a great system. When I got thirsty, I'd ask for a drink, and the trainers would grab a water bottle and squirt some water into my mouth. Perfect. Near the end of the tournament, though, I was standing next next to Coach Schinninger, one of the assistant coaches who worked with me a lot, and I was getting thirsty again. There was a water bottle on the ground next to his feet, so I asked him to get me a drink. Instead of squirting the water into my mouth as the trainers had done all day, he glanced down at the water bottle, then at me, then back at the water bottle. And instead of reaching for it, he looked me in the eye and said something I'll never forget. If you're thirsty enough, you'll find a way. At first, all I could think was, what? I can't pick up the water bottle, coach. I don't have any hands. But as he made no move to help me, I realized he was serious. I was going to have to figure out how to do this. I reconsidered my options and thought, I'll show him. 
I got down on my knees and grabbed the bottle with my two stumps. I stood up and bumped the bottle with my chin to get the right angle, pulled on the cap with my teeth, tilted my head back, and squeezed. And let me tell you, water never tasted so good. I bumped the cap closed with my chin and tossed the bottle back on the ground with a grin on my face that said, Yeah, what's up now, coach? And for the second time that summer, my life changed. With that one accomplishment, who I was shifted again, I wasn't helpless after all. It was a simple drink of water. Yes, but if I could do that, then maybe I could do more. I hadn't just gotten a drink. I had found a way.